may be seated. And please open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 will be in verses 15 through 23 today. Uh, if you are new to the scriptures, to the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the Gospels. If you keep going to the right, you'll hit Acts and then Romans. If you get to 1st, 2nd Corinthians, go back to the left. If you've got that new school Bible, just type in Romans 6, 15 through 23. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square, and it's always good to get to open up God's Word uh, together. Uh, one of the first things that we'll notice about this particular text today is the language of slavery. Now, though Paul has hinted at this language before, he's, he's sort of whispered it, if you will, um, and in other places more sporadically through Romans, this verbiage now becomes really central to what he is writing about. And usually, when we think about slavery, we think about chattel slavery in the American South and North as this nation was colonized and governed from 1619 through the Emancipation Proclamation in 1862, which came into the effect the first day, January 1st, 1863. Many consider Lincoln's proclamation to be the moment when enslaved people in this country became free. However, this announcement or law was only as effective as it was followed. This announcement or this law, the Emancipation Proclamation, was only as powerful, it was only as effective as it was followed. Or to put it another way, the law of the land, particularly this law against enslaving human beings, was a new kind of bondage by which everyone needed to be bound and to which everyone needed to be restricted. That's the same with every law. Now, regretfully, if you know the story of our country, this was not the case. Many continued to enslave black people in this country well beyond January 1, 1863. They refused to be bound by this new law. This is why many black people today celebrate Juneteenth, which commemorates when the word and power of the Emancipation Proclamation finally reached the last enslaved black people on June 19, 1865 in Galveston, Texas. See, slavery only stopped because a new bondage began and took hold in the form of new and just legislation. Are you with me that this is ultimately what Paul will be writing to us about today? One bondage was laid to rest, that of human so-called masters enslaving other human beings. And a new bondage took hold, that of a master of the law prohibiting human slavery. See, to be bound by the new law was to be freed from former bondage. We often think about freedoms, don't we? Particularly in this country, particularly in the West. We think about freedom as the absence of restrictions. In other words, that I get to do what I want to do according to my agency and my power and my desires. Yet Anglican priest Trish Harrison Warren in her weekly column in the New York Times recently explained that Christian ethics call people to ideas of freedom, hear this church, that are not primarily understood as the absence of restraint, but instead as the ability to live well, justly and righteously. It's not the absence of restraint, but the presence of living well, of justice, and of righteousness. Or as Tim Keller and Catherine Alsdorf wrote in their book, Every Good Endeavor, freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as it is finding the right ones, those that fit the reality of our own nature and those of the world. See, the enslavement of human beings was is and forever will be wrong and an evil restriction. 
Yet the law of freedom was and is a righteous restriction, but it's a restriction nevertheless. Freedom requires restriction. Paul's words today, they're going to seem really odd at first, and something's going to happen in many of us where we start building up that defense against God's Spirit as we hear him speaking to us, right? You know what I'm talking about? When you go, oh, this word might be for me today. I better come up ready with the reasons why my neighbor should be here, my mom should be here, or someone else should hear this message because I don't really want to face it. And so we've got to be really careful that when we hear Paul start to kind of get up in our kitchen with this language, that we allow the Spirit of God to speak to us. He's going to call us slaves. But as we consider their meaning, we'll discover that these words and this reality is both beautiful and true for us. We'll put it this way today. True freedom is not the absence of bondage. True freedom is the presence of the right master. True freedom is not the absence of bondage. It's the presence of the right master. Hear these words. Romans chapter 6, verse 15 through 23 reads this way. What then? Are we to sin because we are no longer under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present your members to one another as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Verse 20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as always, regardless of our education, regardless of our familiarity with the Christian tradition, regardless of how many times we have read your word or how much of your word we know, we need your help. We are mere mortal people without the Holy Spirit filling us and shining brightly through the scriptures, the truth and the beauty of you, our God. And so give us eyes to see ears to hear. I pray for those of us who are comfortable. Would you afflict us with your truth? For those of us who are afflicted by the pangs of this world, would you comfort us with your word? What a joy, what a blessing, what a promise that your word does both. That comforts the afflicted and it afflicts the comfortable. Help us to be a people who submit to your word, not just to be hearers of it and to say that was a really nice thing to hear today, but would we be doers of the word that are desperately in need of you to help us inhabit the words of you, our Lord. So help me, help me to be clear, help me to be responsible with your word, and may all of us respond in obedience, we pray with joy in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul, if you remember, ended the previous passage that we looked at a couple of, uh, over the past couple of weeks, with this fulfilled promise. In uh, chapter 6, verse 14, he says, if you move your eyes back up just a little bit, 
for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are no longer under law, but under grace. You see, the good news is that because Jesus lived, he died, he was buried, he rose, and then he ascended, he defeated Satan's sin and death. That means sin no longer has dominion, is what Paul says. Sin no longer reigns in those who are in Christ. Sin is no longer your master, my sisters and my brothers. See, through Christ, by grace, through faith, we've become part of a new humanity, one of life and righteousness and grace. And this idea, culmination, or this, this, this culmination of this idea is sort of woven through chapter 5 on into chapter 6. So if you move your eyes to verse 14 of chapter 5, and then into verse 21, it says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. That's 14. And then move into 21. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, what's Paul saying up until this point? Death was our master. Sin was our slaveholder, and Satan was Lord over us. But then Jesus, can I get an amen? After all of that is true, but then Jesus. Jesus puts death to death. Jesus binds sin. Jesus is Lord, not Satan. And that is really good news. Not in this life, not in the age to come. He conquers the evil one. In other words, Jesus keeps the promise that God has made for centuries. And so sin has no dominion over you anymore. You can refuse sin, and you can embrace righteousness. We are no longer under the law, Paul says. We're under grace. That's where we've been. And that's been the theme and the thread, if you will, on in now to verse 15 and following. Paul carries this, and he summarizes, really, what he has just said previously in chapter 5 and chapter 6 in verses 15 and 19 in chapter 6. So if, if it sounds familiar, if it sounds like Paul is repeating himself, it's because he is, Right? And like a really good teacher, he's not repeating himself because he forgot he already told us. He's repeating himself because it's really easy to forget. It's really easy to forget that sin is not your master anymore. That you are no longer owned by sin. You no longer have to give in to those broken proclivities. That now the Spirit of God dwells within the people of God. And we can take up righteousness. So he's repeating himself for your joy and for mine. So let's hear him again. Verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." Paul says, I am speaking in human terms, which we should be grateful for, that he is speaking in plain language for us to understand because of your natural limitations. For just as you were once members or presented your members as slaves to impurity, to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now, he says, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So Paul summarizes, or he nutshells here where we've been. He says, in human language or in human terms, And so what are those human terms? Specifically, the language of slavery. He speaks now in a very clear, repetitious way, using slavery as a clear communication of who you were outside of Christ and now who we are in Christ. And Paul doesn't really give us a choice, does he? He says you're either slaves of sin or slaves of righteousness. 
This is what I think strikes our modern sensibilities as odd, if not offensive. This is where we start building up that defense and go, how dare you, Paul? How dare you, word of God, speak this way? In fact, most of us have heard of the Christian life described as freedom, right? And life, and we love those things because it is. Jesus frees us from addiction. He frees us from death. He frees us from darkness, right? Yes and amen. But as one of my seminary professors used to repeat all the time, and again, I believe he was repeating it because we were a very forgetful bunch, he says that Jesus, or rather what he regularly said, is that Jesus doesn't just free us from something, but frees us for something. He doesn't just free us from something, he frees us for something. And in that for, something is hidden for us, this idea of bondage. See, Jesus frees us for obedience. Jesus frees us for righteousness. He frees us for purity. He frees us for sanctification. Jesus frees us for love. See, our freedom in Christ, Paul says, is a new kind of slavery. And this is really good news. It means you can't get out of it. It means you're bound up in it. Now, before we battle our modern distaste for this language more, let's consider the, Paul, the, the, the world to which Paul was writing. See, in the first century world, one in three people in Italy were slaves. And one in five people everywhere else were slaves. There were two primary reasons that someone might find themselves in captivity or in slavery. Either they were cap captured through some sort of war or battle, or they went delinquent or defaulted on a debt. And in light, therefore, of the prevalence of slavery, many react very negatively to the Bible because it doesn't just tell all slaves that they are free, and it doesn't command the social injustice and the system to be torn down altogether. Perhaps you have had this critique of the Bible. Perhaps you have heard this critique of the Bible. Many critique Jesus himself for not dismantling slavery. In other words, why is there no emancipation proclamation in the Bible? Have you ever wondered this? We should wonder this. Why, why did it take someone in this country, or in this case Abraham Lincoln and others in other parts of the world, to say such a thing? See, first we need to acknowledge the ubiquity of slavery that made such a simple protest unrealistic. But in submission to the scholarship of Esau Macaulay, I'd like to suggest to you, there is in fact a clear condemnation of slavery throughout the Bible, just not the way that we would expect. Imagine that, God communicating something very clearly, but we not hearing it because we didn't like the way he put it, right? And I live in that space a lot, I don't know about you. God help us. Macaulay writes in his book, Reading While Black, which I implore all of you to read, that the Christian narrative, our core theological principles, and our ethical imperatives creates a world in which slavery becomes unimaginable. What does he mean? Well, in creation, God creates and he imprints all of humanity with his very image, sealing their eternal worth. And so the psalmist could say he made us a little bit lower than the angels. See, we're made to reflect our maker. There's our value, all of his creation, all of those who bear his image. And in the days of Exodus, God vows and fulfills his promise to deliver his people from Egyptian captivity. He does so in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 3. God literally frees his people from literal physical bondage and incarceration and slavery and abuse. In the early days of the church, get this, that slaves and masters gather in the same place as the church 
followers of Jesus, and they overhear from Paul as they read letters from him, respective instructions to love one another as God and Christ had loved them. This was incredibly counterintuitive for anyone in the ancient world. Paul speaks to slaves and masters in Colossae this way. Hear this in chapter 3, verse 22, and chapter 4, verse 1. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And with the same breath, the same gathering, he says, now masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So everyone, irrespective of their legal status, is overhearing the charge to everyone to love one another as God in Christ had loved them. Finally, in the spirit of the Lord God, Jesus quotes Isaiah 61 in his his coming out party, his public ministry in Luke chapter 4. He says, the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, and hear, hear this, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison of those who are bound. See, Jesus understood that he had come to save those, to free those who were in spiritual bondage, to free them from Satan, sin, death, and to free them for God, healing, and life. See, God is not about human beings enslaving other human beings ever. God is not about human beings being enslaved by darkness either. God creates us with equity. God frees his people from suffering and abuse and bondage. God then builds his church on loving mutuality. God sets free those who are spiritually captive. And yet, despite all of that, Paul still calls us slaves. Do you see, what can we discern from this dichotomy? That slavery as a concept is not the issue. God, therefore, must be taking issue with something else. Notice how Paul continues in verse 20 of chapter 6. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is what? Death. See, when you're bound in sin, you are not living with righteousness. The bondage is bankrupt. It leads to shame. It leads to fruitlessness. It leads immediately and ultimately to death. We know this in our own addictions. We know this in our own struggle with sin. Those things never work out for our good. None of us has a story about, I disobeyed God for 20 years and things are going great. And I've ignored his word and I've done what I've wanted. It leads to a kind of captivity that ultimately brings death. And in fact, I should revise. If any of us do believe that we are doing good, what 2 Corinthians chapter 4 teaches us is that the God of this evil age has blinded the hearts of unbelievers so that they cannot see the gospel or the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. So if you believe things are going well and you continue to do as you please, you are actually quite blind. See, church, do we see? May our eyes be open to this. Our great issue as slaves is not that we have restrictions and restraints. It's that we are bound by the wrong things whether by our sins or by the sins of others. It's that we surrender to and have been captured by evil masters. See, Pharaoh is a bad master. White people are bad masters. Any human being is a bad master. Satan, sin, and death are bad and evil masters. In other words, when we are bound by masters that don't love us, it kills us. 
When you are bound by a master who does not love you or a power that never could return your affection, it kills you. See, we are bound by the wrong things. That's the issue that God has. In the Bible, the problem is not servitude, not that we are bound to a Lord, but rather that we settle or have been captured by unloving and destructive powers and sins and people and darkness that lead ultimately to death. This is why we can say that true freedom is not the absence of bondage. True freedom is the presence of the right master. Look what Paul says as he concludes this portion in verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness, or rather slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end is what? Eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Notice, you have been set free and become slaves. Did you notice that language? This is mind-blowing. This is not how we would have constructed this thing if we would have written the story. It doesn't make sense. It's an incredible cosmic paradox that we have been set free. We've been set free from sin, but we have been set free for God. Jesus frees us from something, and he frees us for something. We have become slaves of God. We are bound to him. We're slaves to fruit-bearing. We're slaves to sanctification. We're slaves to growing up in Jesus. We're slaves to eternal life. We're slaves to freedom. We're slaves to justice and righteousness and joy and grace and love. Oh, what a gift to be bound to God. What a gift to be wrapped up in his affection and you can't get out. What a gift that you can't do anything but grow up in Christ because the spirit of God dwells in you. You can't go anywhere. He's got you. This should be deeply reassuring. It should do the opposite of what the evil one's telling you. Oh, he must not love me if he's calling me a slave. He must not want my good. He must want me to not have joy. No, that's exactly why he wraps you up. That's exactly why he binds you up. That's exactly why he takes away your shackles of death and puts on shackles of love and eternal life. Can I get a witness today or what? This is good news. Jesus frees us from something that is killing us and he frees us for something that resurrects us. Why does he do this? Because he loves you. See, God is the only master who is not your equal, yet loves you like a son and like a daughter because that's who you are. This is the difference between God being your master and every other facsimile of a master is that he loves you. He binds you up out of affection and he holds on to you out of love. Jesus understood this paradox. And, and for the rest of our time, I want us to get centered and kind of consider Matthew chapter 11 and Jesus' incredible words here. So flip to the left, Matthew 11, verse 28 and 29, words maybe many of us have heard before, and yet the context, I think, will help us to see what Paul is getting at and how Jesus understood this is why he had come. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and 29, he says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In a similar fashion to the way that Paul says you are set free and have become slaves, Jesus says, notice, I'll give you rest, and what's the next thing out of, out of his mouth? Take my yoke upon you. A yoke binds you. A yoke is a harness. He doesn't say, as we might expect, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my pillow. Take a nap 
right here. That, that's at least where my mind would go. If you want me to rest, I better do nothing or do as I please. So take away the restrictions. Are you tracking with me? He doesn't. What does he say? I'll give you rest. Take my yoke. We've got to ask a couple of questions to understand what he's getting at. First, who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to tired people. Are you with me yet? He's talking to tired people. Anybody tired in this room today? Anybody tired who's joining us online? He's talking to broken people. Might get a little quieter, amen. Is anybody broken today and feeling your weakness? See, why are they tired and why are they broken? Well, in the wider context, Jesus has just explained and judged cities that were wrapped up in idolatry. And then he has explained how he is the only way to the Father. So what's that tell us? People are tired and people are broken because they are investing and loving and following other gods and other idols. All of your idols will leave you tired and broken. And so Jesus is this gracious invitation in the middle of that brokenness. Come to me. They have all been bound by earthly masters whose yokes are crippling, destructive, abusive, and lead to death. It is a master who does not love what is in the yoke. Second, what is a yoke? It's a restrictive wooden harness used for agricultural purposes like I know. I had to read about it. A beast was pulled in a yoke to be controlled or made useful. The yoke, hear this, the yoke was not evil but the one who controlled the yoke could be. The yoke in and of itself made the beast of burden productive, made the beast of burden actually free to use the power and strength and abilities that it had. The yoke was not evil, but the one using it could be. The yoke was not inherently bad, but the master could be. It came down to the character of the one controlling the yoke. Am I preaching to you yet? That a life with restrictions is not the problem. It's rather is the one who has placed those restrictions and the restrictions to whom you are submitting. Do they love you? Are they about your good? See, therefore, yoke in the New Testament becomes this metaphor of carrying and plowing. It is the mark of servitude. Jesus says what? His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Why? What makes his burden and his bondage different? because he's a different kind of master. Notice, he's gentle. He's lowly in heart. He's humble. His yoke is also purposeful. Learn from me, he says. Taking on the yoke of Jesus is an invitation to discipleship. It's an invitation to join him in the yoke because he's already there. He identifies with us. He serves us and takes care of us. And so servitude to Jesus actually leads to rest and refreshment and joy because life with Jesus is the right restriction because Jesus is the right and sufficient master. He's the one who loves you back. I'd like to suggest to you that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is his cosmic proclamation of emancipation. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is his cosmic proclamation of emancipation. Freedom is true. Freedom is real. Freedom is the new reality of Jesus' inaugurated kingdom. Yet, like those years between Lincoln's proclamation and the last years to hear it in Galveston, Texas, many of us continue to live underneath the tyranny of death and its captivity. And you don't have to anymore. Therefore, it is the joy and the purpose of the church, those who have been liberated by these life-giving shackles, to spread this new law of liberty, the reality of freedom through a bondage of love until the world knows. Until the world knows. That's what Paul writes here in Romans, but he summarizes it well in Galatians chapter 5. 
For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's your new bondage. Is to love your neighbor as God in Christ has loved you. True freedom is not the absence of bondage. True freedom is the presence of the right master. The Lord is right. The Lord is good. The Lord is a loving and righteous restriction upon your life. The one who loved us first binds us up in his love. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us to live these words, to believe these words, to love these words. That we are bound in you. That we are bound up by your grace, by your love, by your goodness, by your righteousness. And we thank you that these shackles are not going anywhere. That whom the Son has set free, he is free indeed. We love you, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.